Okay, good morning everyone. I want to thank our series sponsor for the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family, who sponsored this year's Parsha Shir in memory of David Grossman, David Menachem Manash, Neshama Shalav and Aliyah. This morning Shir in particular, Parsha's Kisete is also generously sponsored by Alan Shanker in honor of his mother, Ruth Shanker from St. Louis, who passed away. She was 100 years old. Her Neshama should have an Aliyah. Parsha's Kisete is chock full of mitzvos, an amazing, amazing Parsha. And uh, we could spend an entire hour on any one given pasuk, on any one given mitzvah in the parsha. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. So we'll see how far as we get. But it's an amazing mitzvah. Moshe is continuing his charge to the Jewish people when they enter the land of Israel to set up a, a country steeped in Torah values. So it will be a model for the rest of the world to learn from. So included in that is Unfortunately, the world and life is filled with wars. There are battles that have to be fought. We go out to defend our land and our people, sometimes defensive battles, sometimes even offensive battles. And here, of course, all the Mephoshim talk about, we won't elaborate on this morning, but the idea that this battle, Kisetze la Melchama, is not only describing the national collective battle, but it's describing the individual personal battle. Each of us face battles every single day. Our alter ego, our voice of self-sabotage, we uh, fight temptation, distraction, anxiousness, worry, doubt. There are battles, there are wars that we fight on a regular basis. And the same prescription for how to fight collectively is true and can be applied to how to fight as uh, individuals and to defeat our alter ego, to defeat the voice of resistance, to defeat the Yetzirah as well. That's our topic for Shabbat Shuvah this year. Aren't you impressed? I already know my topic for Shabbat Shuvah. <laughs> topic is the Yetzirah. How do we define it and how do we overcome it? The notion of resistance. The Yetzirah ultimately is the resistance that's holding us back. And here the Torah, the Torah talks about, it opens here, Pashas Kisetse, with the story of the Yafas Tawar, that a person is at war, who's battling, encounters a beautiful woman, and uh, can't hold himself back. The Torah says exactly what they should do, why they should do. Is the Torah part of utopian literature, or is the Torah a practical guide for a reality? A reality of fallible people living with temptation and with struggle. A man has two wives, God bless him, and has children, who is the Bechor. And then we move into the Ben Sora Rumora, Ben Sora Rumora, a halacha that never happened, it has never occurred. And yet, why do we study it? If we study it, we get a reward. And the Mephoshim point out, what's the reward we get for studying is we are spending time understanding uh, parenting, children, what makes them tick, our responsibility as parents, where children go wrong, and how we keep them on the straight now. There's a lot to say, we've studied this in the past, what we can learn from Ben Sora Mora about parents speaking with one voice, with two voices, who are parents who are practicing what they preach, where does a rebellious child come from? Again, no, we've spoken about this in the past. We continue, We have the uh, story, the prohibition, of Nivlas Hames, you're not allowed to uh, push off or delay in burying a person. Los Salin Nivlaso Al Ha'etz, Baal Talin is to delay a burial. We prefer, we preferably bury a person as soon as possible, the same day they expire, the same day they leave this world. Of course, that's not always feasible. Sometimes we're waiting for family to come in. Sometimes there are arrangements that need to be made. Sometimes there is a hurricane threatening you. We don't always have the ability to do things on our timetable. And the calculation halachically is whatever will give the greatest covet ames. But there is a biblical prohibition of losalan. You're not allowed to delay. Kavor tik parenu bayomahu. The greatest honor is to try to bury that day. And so on. The next section, We're on page 1048. I'm speaking quickly. I apologize. I want to get so much in. As I mentioned, it's chock full of these mitzvahs that are teaching us interpersonally how to live in this world in a very real way, in a way that resonates deeply for us. Parshas Kisetze is challenging us, not just how to avoid being bad people, but what does it mean to be a good person? I've shared this idea many, many times, that in America, what we describe as a good person is not actually a good person. Who's a good American? 
someone who doesn't steal on their taxes, doesn't cheat, doesn't lie, doesn't rape, doesn't pillage, doesn't harass. But that's not actually someone who's good. All that is is someone who's not bad. Our expectation is so low. The bar is so low. To be a good American, a good American citizen, don't, 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 and don't. That's not good. That's just not bad. To be a good Jew, the Torah challenges us to be a good person. Our definition of a good person is more than just that you avoid bad or evil, but that we are actually molded and shaped into becoming good people. And here's a good, and this Parshas Kisetze is filled with examples of it. The sensitivity, the thoughtfulness, the consciousness, the mindfulness, the care, the concern, the empathy we have to have with others. You're not allowed to see your brother's sheep or goat who are wandering, lost. Well, you're going to close your eyes? In other words, you see someone as a lost object. American law doesn't require you. British law doesn't require you. European law. There's no law that requires you when you see someone's lost object to return it. But Torah law does require you. You're going to close your eyes? That's not a luxury that we afford ourselves. We're not entitled to do that. We have a halachic responsibility and a halachic obligation to, uh, to return a lost object because we have to be good and kind and moral and ethical. And being good is not just about not being bad. Being good is actually about being good. It's another level. It's a different standard. We're trying to achieve a different, a different way of being. A different way of being. So, you have to be able to give it back to your, to your brother. That's the responsibility. The, um, there's an amazing Shlach Kadosh. The Shlach Kadosh, the author of the Shnei Luchos Abris, of Yeshaya Horowitz, in his Shlach Kadosh, in his uh, Shnei Luchos Abris, he says the following. In Ba'avedas Mamon, his Hira Torah, Shayim Asalamehem, El Akolecha Beachem Mutelas Achova, Lashivam Nabalayem, Al Achas Kama Bekama Ba'avedas Hanefesh Kain. If a person loses a material possession, an object, and we're not allowed to cover our eyes, we can't pretend we didn't see it. We have to go out of our way to try to identify the owner and to return it to them. If that's true for a physical material possession, all the more so is true for a lost person. When a person is lost, I don't mean you're in Disney or Epcot and there's a lost child. There's also a mitzvah to try to help them find their parent. But I mean, or what the Shlach Kadosh means is, when there's a person who with their neshama is lost, they're a lost soul, they're wandering, nidachim, they're wandering through life, and they're a lost soul. They've lost an anchor of what's important, of what matters, of what's a priority. They've lost the direction of how to achieve goals and how to aspire and how to be their best self. They've lost the sense of Yiddishkeit. They're off the derech, or they were never introduced to the derech to begin with. If the Torah tells us you're not allowed to see a lost object and neglect it, pretend you don't see it, then you're not allowed to see a lost soul and neglect it, him or her, and pretend you don't see that. We emphasize all the time, we live in a county that's so densely and richly populated with Jews. South Palm Beach County, Boca Raton del Rey, has more Jews in Boca Raton than many countries in the world, Australia, South Africa, and many countries in the world there are Jews. So 130,000 Jews in our, you go to this, just the other day, where was I? And just the other day, oh, where was I yesterday? I don't remember where I was yesterday. That's also, I belong here, yeah, exactly, I fit right in. So I don't remember where I was yesterday. I'm trying to remember where I was yesterday. A random woman came over to me and she said, it's so nice to see a yarmulke here. I've been living here 40 years and that Jews can be comfortable here wearing yarmulkes. What a nice sight. She's clearly not observant herself and she appreciated seeing a yarmulke. And then she said, you speak Yiddish? Sein mir gesund. And walked away. Good. That's what we call, in the outreach world, we call that bagel. At some point it'll strike me where that encounter happened. I don't even remember. But in the outreach world, we call that bageling. People are constantly reaching out and they're saying, invite me for a Shabbos. Invite me for Yom Noraim to Rabbi Brody's outreach program. Invite me, expose me, teach me, bring me in. And the hisalamta mehem, are we going to close our eyes? Somebody makes that gesture. You know, when they're in the line behind you at Costco and they're reaching for their uh, enormous uh, stock of toilet paper and they say, oy vey. That's their way of saying to you, oy vey loosely translates to invite me for a Shabbos meal. Notice that, I'm, <laughs> notice that I'm here. Notice that I'm here and invite me. So Shlach Kodesh says, we see that from this Pasuk. 
Kisira, if you see Nidachim, they're wandering, you're going to close your eyes? You're going to pretend they didn't just bagel you? They didn't just say, Oyvei? They didn't just introduce themselves, begging for your Jewish attention? Rather, Hashem Teshivim Le'achicha. You have to return them. To whom do we return them? To our brother, in this case, to Akash Baruch Hu. We bring our Jewish brothers and sisters back. We bring them home. That is how the Shlach Kadosh understands. But again, you see in this Pasuk that the standard in Judaism is not just to avoid being bad. Our standard is to be good. And I read a story once about a young woman who had become a Balash Tshuva. She had become religious. And uh, her parents, her mother in particular, was very disappointed. She was very upset. She felt very rejected by her daughter, was very upset at the religious fanatic that her daughter had become by becoming Torah observant, to the point that they were alienated and they weren't talking. The mother had really rejected her daughter as a result of the choice that she had made. And in the story, it was uh, long before cell phones and smartphones, the daughter had taken a cab, a taxi, and had left her contact book. It fell out of her pocketbook in the back of the taxi. The taxi driver, um, somebody had found this, trying to remember the story now, uh, a, a firm Jew took the taxi next and found the book in the back of the taxi and determined they wanted to return this, this uh, book to the rightful owner. So randomly opened the contact book and found the name of somebody and made a phone call to see if by calling the contacts they could figure out who was the rightful owner of the contact book. And lo and behold, it was the mother. And when the mother answered and they had a conversation and she came to understand, why did you call me? And what, I don't understand. So you took the cab, so you found it. Why didn't you leave it there? Why didn't you throw it out? Why are you making the effort? And he explained, I'm an observant Torah Jew and our Torah has a standard. I have a religious responsibility, a moral imperative and obligation. I'm not entitled to neglect it just because it's inconvenient for me to try to return it to its rightful owner. And the mother was so moved that that's what it means to be Torah observant, that ad kedekach, it would, it would inspire somebody to live that lifestyle. She was the one randomly chosen from the contact book of that daughter, that that's what restored that relationship. So this Pasuk is giving us a standard of not just how to not be bad, but this Pasha and this Pasuk in particular, this Mitzvah, is teaching us how to be good, return objects to the rightful owner, and return people, return people to a way of life, return people to the Yiddishkeit, which each of them is entitled to. The Pasuk goes on to say that if you don't know to whom to, uh, to whom to return it, you don't know the rightful owner, then you take it home and you guard it until you can find that rightful owner. And here the Mepharshim continue to expand. I think the Orachayim takes it the same way. He says, Oh, you don't know when the end of days and you don't know how to return that person home. So you bring them in and you, you, you safeguard them along the same lines of applying this Pasuk to the world of, to the world of outreach. Okay, continuing. The Torah then tells us next. Pasuk Dalet, on the bottom of page 1048, onto page 1050. The next Pasuk, if you see your neighbor and you see their donkey is collapsing under its load, so again, you know, you can't turn away, you can't close your eyes, you can't pretend you didn't see it. American law, you could pretend all day long. In American law, you could drive by somebody on the side of the road who's trying to change the tire, and you can pretend you didn't see them. But in Torah law, you have a halachic mandate, a halachic responsibility. If you see somebody whose uh, animal is collapsing under its load, you're going to pretend you didn't see it? Hakem takim imo. You have to help them. You have to be able to help them. There's another story I once read about, uh, about the non-Jew up in the Catskills, keeps a yarmulke in his glove compartment. And when his friend found it in the glove compartment and said, what are you doing with that? Why is that in your glove compartment? He said, oh, I keep it there in case I ever get a flat tire. <laughs> so what do you mean? He said, if I get a flat tire, I know that if I put that on my head while I'm on the side of the road, I know somebody's going to stop and help me. So that's why he keeps a yarmulke in his glove compartment. So, Hakim Takimimo, you see somebody's animal collapsing and you're not going to, we have an obligation. Now it's interesting, here the Torah formulates this mitzvah. Losir as chamor, it uh, identifies, you can't see the donkey of your, of achicha, of your brother, of your brother. What's interesting is that we have this mitzvah earlier in the Torah. And when the mitzvah is mentioned earlier in the Torah, it doesn't say achicha, it doesn't say your brother. Who does it say there? Losira Chamor, earlier in the Torah. It says Losira Chamor, Sonacha, of your enemy. When you see the donkey of your enemy collapsing. How did the enemy go to becoming your friend? 
when the Torah is repeating the mitzvahs, and here in the Mishnah Torah in Sefer Dvarim, we have a repetition of many of the mitzvahs. When the Torah is recounting and recalling the mitzvah, how did your enemy become your friend? How did that happen? So the Ramban there earlier in the Torah explains exactly how it happened. You know how it happened? By the way, not only did your enemy become your friend, but the Gemara derives in Baba Basra that when you drive on the highway, and there's two people with flat tires, and one of them is your best friend, and the other is your arch nemesis. The other is your enemy. The other is your number one competitor. The other one is the person who hurt you. So, and you're stopping to help one. Which do you help first? So I would have thought you help your friend first, but the halacha, because at first the Pasuk is first formulated as sonacha, as your enemy, the Gemara records that the halacha is first you help your enemy. Halachically, first you have to help your enemy before your friend. So the Ramban wonders, what happened? When the mitzvah was first given, it's you can't see the animal or the flat tire of your enemy. And now in Sefer Dvarim, when it's repeated in Kisei, it's the, it's, the, it's the animal or the car of your friend. What happened? The Ramban says it's very simple. You know what happened? You helped him. And when you help somebody, they go from being your enemy to your friend. And they go from your enemy to your friend, not because they now are indebted to you, not because they now are appreciative to you, but the fact that you've invested in them, they now are an extension of you. You've put yourself out. You've helped someone. You ever hear of killing someone with kindness? You win someone over because instead of trying to escalate a fight, instead of trying to get even, when you're kind to the person, when you're overly kind to the person, then you transform them from being so na'acha, your enemy, to achicha, to your brother, and to becoming your friend. Now the Pasuk points out, hakeim takim, what's the word hakeim takim? Imo, imo, that word imo is very, very significant here. And the Mepharshim here and earlier in the Torah when the mitzvah was given, emphasized that word imo. What are they emphasizing about the word imo? You're not obligated to change the flat tire on the side of the road if the person is in a lounge chair sipping a pina colada watching you break your back. Hakeim takim imo. You see the animal collapsing. Surely you must help your friend. But the emphasis is on help your friend. The Kliyaka there earlier in the Torah, and here the Katzkarebbe has an insight, which we'll share with you in a moment along the same lines, but emphasizes that word emo. When there are people around us who are faltering, who are falling, who are struggling, we only have to help people who are helping themselves. If somebody's not making the effort to help themselves, we're not obligated to be their parachute. We're not obligated to rescue them. Emo, a person has to take the initiative. They have to do their part. We don't sweep in and save them while they are reclining comfortably and watching. The halacha is emo, with them, with them. On this, uh, on this insight of emo in general, the Kliyakar derives from here. The Kliyakar goes on a whole, not in our parsha, earlier the Kliyakar goes on, on essentially a tirade. And he says, in the world of stucco, we have this all the time. People who aren't working, they're not doing their effort, they're not doing everything they can, but they want to be supported by others. A sense of entitlement. The community should support. I knock on doors and everyone should write that check and I don't have to work and I don't have to make an effort and I don't have to push myself. But, and the Kliyakar says, emo. When is someone entitled to tzedakah dollars? Only emo when the tzedakah is complementing the effort they're making. But if the tzedakah is in lieu of an effort, if a person just feels entitled altogether, there's no mitzvah tzedakah, says the Kliyakar. From this pasuk, hakeim takim emo, we help the person who is helping themselves. On this, the Kotzkarebbe applies it again to the spiritual world. Based on the Gemara and Shabbos, the Gemara and Shabbos, Dav Kofdalad says, that a person who wants to transform themselves for the good, Hashem helps you. And a person who is headed towards bad, then, you'll find the opportunity to do bad. And says the Kotzkarebbe from here, that what do you see? Hashem wants to help us. If you're floundering, if you're faltering, if you're falling, Hashem is going to catch us, He's going to lift us up. But Hakeim Takim Imo. He needs to see us making our effort. Emo, it's with us. That Habalatar Messiah no Shamayim. It's the month of Elo, we're doing tshuva. We can't just say, Hashem, transform me. Hashem, make me a better person. Hashem, make me healthier. So Emo, we have to do our part. We take our effort and our initiative. And then Emo, Hashem does his part, meets us halfway, and helps us as well. Okay, Torah continues now with more mitzvahs. The next mitzvah. This is not politically correct today. These psukim are dangerous to teach publicly. What well, once were taken very for granted, 
not only in a religious Torah community, but in the world at large. And of course I say, we, we have to study them with sensitivity and with love, without judgment of others, with warmth, with acceptance. But at the same time, we don't have to be apologetic whatsoever about our timeless sacred Torah values that we believe the creator of the universe who designed the universe has given to us. So here the Torah says, We have a prohibition to mix species. The next several psukim, um, or the next section, includes several psukim that tell us that we have distinct species and we have a Torah obligation to preserve the distinction of those species. Because Baruch created two genders. He created a world where there's masculinity and femininity. There are men and there are women. Anatomically, that's a truth. It's undeniably a truth. Anatomically, there are, there are lo'aleinu, um, babies who are born who do not have a gender specific, where it's unclear what the Mishnah and the Talmud call androgynous and tumtum, and, and medically is a condition. That once upon a time was a tragic condition where parents had to assign a gender to that child. It was once considered a tragedy. Now people electively are choosing their own pronoun and their own status and their own, and their own orientation and so on and so forth. And again, I say this with sensitivity. Long before it was in vogue and popular, we gave a shir about transgender. The most popular shir I ever gave on, on Hawaii Torah, thousands and thousands of listens before it was popular. And I emphasized over and over in there about the importance of dealing with these issues with sensitivity. We can't be callous. We can't be cold. No matter why we are unapologetically preserving our position on these things, we have to do it with a sense of, of sensitivity. But the Torah, Hashem created a world where there are genders. By the way, not just in the human species, there are different genders in the animal kingdom, male and female, and there's genders in the plant kingdom. Among the vegetative world, the plants, there are male and female, masculine and feminine qualities. Because in order for there to be an equilibrium and balance in this world, each brings their energy, each brings their quality, and only in combination do we have a continuity to this planet and to this universe. Within the design of the world itself, we see the natural expectation of how continuity occurs, and by extension, what the moral position is. So here the Torah tells us this in several different fashions. It tells it to us in the world of dress, Cross-dressing is a biblical prohibition because it is blurring the boundary of those separate energies that of masculinity and femininity, and the world needs both. Women shouldn't pretend to take on masculine qualities, and men shouldn't pretend. The world needs both. Each is contributing, and it's the, it's the complementing and the balance, the equilibrium which is struck, which is responsible for the continuity of the world. And then we have another example of it. You're not allowed to plow with two animals together. You're not allowed to wear shatnes. It's true that you can't mix fibers, wool and linen together. We have an exception of, of uh, the four corners of our garment. Sits us an exception. The positive supersedes the negative. That we have a commandment of tzitzis, even though it includes even though it includes shatnas. So here the Torah has several mitzvahs in succession that all deal with this question of preserving separate species. Why does God care about that? Why does it matter? Why do we have to have masculinity and femininity and wool and linen and animals that don't belong together, shouldn't be plowing together? You're not allowed to make a hybrid in the animal kingdom. You're not allowed to make a hybrid in the vegetable, in the vegetative world either. You can't take two species and create a hybrid among them. That's a prohibition of kilayim. We have kilayah kerem, kilayim on the vine, and we have kilayah sada, and we have kilayim of shatnez in our clothing, and we have kilayim among people. Why is that? So Rabbi Soloveitchik, again, this was not uh, politically correct. I mean, at the time it wasn't not politically correct, but uh, it has become less so. And I don't want to spend too much time or create too much of a distraction by sharing this piece. I want to get to an insight of the Lubavitcher Rebbe Zatzal on this. But Rabbi Salavitchik writes, the plant is described by the Torah as having three unique qualities. Growth, Tadsheh, reproduction, Esav, Mazria, Zera, and a group identity that's carried through the mechanism of hereditary, Osepri, Lemino. The Ramban connects the relationship with the prohibition of Kilayim to the quality of group belonging with which God endowed plants and animals at the birth of organic life. We find Kilayim applicable to plant and animal alike. Unnatural mating for the purpose of developing an organic hybrid culture was prohibited. Why? So here the Rav answer, uh, offers his insight. The Torah looks askance at artificial changing of the group traits. 
The Torah sees in such an act an attempt on, one's, on man's part to interfere with the structural and functional patterns that are inherent in organic systems and to bring about unnecessary mutations of forms. The Torah calls such acts hashchasa, corruption, deterioration, destruction, for all the flesh had corrupted its way on earth. That's Parshas Noach. When Hashem decides to press a hard reset and start the world from scratch, it's because there was a violation of the natural order and the way that He wanted to. We find a similar injunction in regard to man. I'm not going to read this. It's so politically incorrect. I don't want to upset anybody and upset anyone about the Rav. But the Rav gets into what today has become normative and mainstream. And I share it this morning with you, again, not to upset anyone. We have to relate to it with sensitivity. We have to invite all to find their place within our community with no judgment. And certainly, God forbid, with no bullying um, or no harassment. Everyone is welcome and deserves to be treated for the Tzalem Kim and the respect that they are. But we, we have a responsibility to Hashem. We have a responsibility to God, who we also have to be sensitive to. It's not only people that we have to be sensitive to. The Rebona Shalom wants us to be sensitive to Him by preserving His vision for this world. And His vision for this world is, is, is pretty straightforward and pretty clear about, uh, about the expectations of interpersonal relationships and, interper- and, and personal identity. And these psukim are an expression of that. If you want to understand what I'm trying to dance around and not say explicitly, then buy your own copy of the Rav Chumash, and it's on page 175. You could read it in the Rav's, in the Rav's own words. The Labavitch Rebbe also expands on this theme in Parshas Kedoshim. I don't remember if we shared this then. If we did, it's good Chazara, and if we didn't, then uh, it's good to learn for the first time. But he, he brings our attention to the mission. The Mishnah list, Mashmim Ba'adar on the first day of the month of, the, of Adar, they would announce regarding the Shkalom. They would announce that everybody has to come give their Machatzis HaShekel. And that fund, that horn, literally the Keren, that collected the Machatzis HaShekel was what uh, funded the uh, collective um, Karbonos, the communal sacrifices, were from the Shekel donations that were given from Nisan to Nisan. But they first began to announce it in Adar. Why? Why couldn't you just use last year's donations to pay for this year? Why do I have to have a Kol Nidre appeal every year and a Shul membership every year? And every year there's new stock opportunities. And every year, every month, every week, every day, there's new appeals that are being done. Tom Cheshabbos needs your help. Linda's sitting here. Tom Cheshabbos desperately needs everybody's help. We're supporting more than 30 families, putting food on their table every single week. It desperately needs your help. So why do you have to uh, replenish the coffers? Why do we have to take from the new fund? Why can't you use from the old fund? That's a halacha that you're not allowed to use from the, the old fund. And here, Labav Cherebbe had a very, very amazing insight, a really incredible insight, that you're not allowed to mix the shekel of the old year with the shekels of the new year. Just as the laws of Kelayim teach us not to mix the order of creation when it comes to creatures themselves, so too does shekel teach us the same lesson when it comes to time, to our potential, to our goals. Each and every year has its own energy and unique potential for holiness. This is the interconnection between shekel and Kelayim. And why that Mishnah list, I forgot, I'm sorry, the Mishnah list, they would announce two things, Rosh Chodesh Adar. They would announce about the new shekel, and they would announce to check your field and make sure that you have no problem of Kelayim. And that's what the Rebbe was asking. What in the world is the connection between the two? Don't forget to make your donation. Don't forget to renew your membership, from which we can pay for the communal service. Oh, and don't forget to check your field for Kelayim. And the brilliant insight of the Rebbe was that the common denominator is that we can't create a hybrid. We don't overlap, we don't blur boundaries, we don't mix things that need to remain separate. And just as we don't create a hybrid among species to create something new, so too we don't create a hybrid in time. Everything, everything has its own time. Each year has its own time. Each year has its own energy. And we don't overlap those, we don't overlap those energies, but they're meant to be kept separate and they're meant to be kept distinct. In the Sicha, the Rebbe elaborates on this most uh, longer, but I'll just tell you his uh, conclusion. I'll tell you his conclusion. The several lessons to be learned from Kelayim that we apply to our general Avodah HaKodesh, to our service of Hashem in general. The first is that we don't mix times, that we're given unique energies and blessings to use every year, and these blessings constitute a certain responsibility. It's common nowadays that we talk about conservation of resources. And Kalayim teaches us to conserve the unique energies of the year, but not to overlap them or save them. And Lubavitch Rebbe was very against endowments. He didn't believe in endowments. What's an endowment? You try to collect large donations from which you never touch the principal 
and you benefit from the interest or the return, and that way you grow an endowment which continues to, the principal continues to produce for you so that you can grow it. The Babach Rebbe did not believe in endowments because of this vort, because of this insight. He believed each energy, each year has its own energy. And if you have that money, change the world with it now. Don't bank it, don't store it. We have an endowment at PRS. Maybe the Shtib Minyan doesn't, the rest of the shul does. Uh, we have an endowment. But he was against it for this reason, because there's a kalayim in time. The notion of using the power given to us at a time in our life to improve the world in that moment. And don't save it for the next year. Don't mix the energy of different years in our lives. You know, that, that there's a kalayim in time, and that we should have a self-awareness and self-reflection. What am I meant to do in this time and this year? Everything has its own time. And that's why they had to do a renewed solicitation. It was a renewed collection. Because there was the machatz shekel for this year as distinct from the machatz shekel of last year or of next year. Number two, not to mix people. Each and every one of us has a unique mission to try to do what someone else is doing or destined to do. We will meet with failure. That's not our mission. That's an avoda zara, an avoda, a service, which is zara, which should be foreign to us. But kilayim in people means we should understand who we are and how we're made up and what our potential and what we're meant to contribute to this world and not to have kilayim in our belongings, not to have kilayim among what we have. That we understand each of these things as a unique place in this world and that's why Hashem created it. Okay, interspersed right in here is the mitzvah of ma'akeh the obligation or responsibility to have a fence around our property. Torah says, If you build a new home and you must make a fence around your roof, on page 1050 in the art scroll stone chumash. Make a fence on your roof so that there's no blood on your hands. Lest somebody fall off the roof and that will be your responsibility. That will be your responsibility. This pasuk is a Torah obligation. This is one of the Taryag mitzvos, and it is halacha lemaisa, and all the dangerous places. This is a halachic obligation to have a fence around your pool, on your balcony, on your rooftop, on your staircase. Any place which is potentially dangerous needs to have a fence in order to safeguard, protect, and in order to prevent a disaster. The Gemara in Baba Basra Dafnanal says, the halacha requires the rail to be a minimum of 10 tfachim, about three and a third feet high, and it has to be designed to withstand the weight of an average person leaning on it. If it's a flimsy fence, you've not fulfilled the halacha. You're in violation of a Torah prohibition. If it's too low, you're not in fulfillment of the halacha. I remember in one of my, in, in one of my previous houses, we're living in our third house in Boga, in one of the previous houses, one of my rebellion was over and saw the uh, railing on the second floor and said that's not tall enough. You're not in fulfillment of the mitzvah of Makkah. You have a lachic obligation, responsibility to make the railing higher, to make it higher. The Gemara Baba Kama and Iksubis learn a corollary of the law that not only can you not, uh, are we obligated to prevent anything dangerous by having a railing, you're not allowed to have anything dangerous in your house. A rabbit or a wild or violent dog, a flimsy ladder that's uh, not locked up on the side of your house, Having anything dangerous in the house is a violation of Makkah. Makkah is not just a, a rooftop or a staircase, but it's something which is even beyond. The Rambam, the Chayadim say this mitzvah like others requires a bracha. When you put up that Makkah, if you're expanding that, that uh, fence, you say a bracha. It's a tired mitzvah. It's one of the mitzvahs. It's a halacha. It's a halacha. So the Pasuk about Makkah that we just read is meant to be taken literally, and it introduces a mitzvah, but there's also a very, very a much deeper message, a broader message. The uh, Rabbeinu Bachaya says here on the uh, Pasuk, Ki chadash. The halach of Makkah applies even if it's not a new home. If you build a new home, you have to build it to specs that meet Makkah, standards. But even if you buy an existing home, even if you've been living in your home forever and your Makkah specs don't meet the uh, requirement, then you still have to. So you buy, build or acquire an old home, you have to you have to uh, meet this halacha. So why does the Pasuk here, why does the Torah introduce this mitzvah with, with these words, when you build a new home? So Rabbeinu Bachia says the following. He says the following. What does it mean, you build or acquire a home, you have a place for your material possessions. This is your place that you reside in, that you live in, that you accumulate your things, where you park your car, where you display your silver, 
When you're building your home that you will see as defining you, then put a boundary around it. Put up a fence. That's what he says the Pasuk is telling us. Halachically it means put up a fence that nobody falls. Spiritually what it means, place a boundary over your pursuit of having things. There's nothing wrong with having things. Enjoy them. Use them. But asisa ma'akeh. Put a fence. Don't confuse your house or your car, your nice watch, or your elaborate wine collection with who you are. Have the nice things. Enjoy the nice things. Enjoy the comforts of life, but don't confuse those things with who you are. Asisa ma'akeh ligagecha. So why is it introduced with the words kisivne ba'is chadash? Because he says this is the month of Elul. Ba'is chadash. You're trying to establish a new attitude, a new perspective, a new lease on life. You're trying to bring a new energy to your life. If you're trying to do tshuva and you're trying to create renewal, what's the first step? Look at the things in your life and ask, are you mistapik b'muat? Are you satisfied with less or do you always need more? Because if you're living a life where you always need more, if it's the relentless pursuit of more, then you will surely fall. That's what the Pasuk says. If you don't have a boundary, if you don't put up a makkeh, if there's no fence around our pursuit of more, then we will surely fall and we will surely get damaged. And this is our mission. In this month of Elul, if we want to be growing and improving and pursuing personal growth, we need to put up a fence. We have to have boundaries. They have to have context. They belong in a, in a uh, very important and distinct perspective. Okay, I want to use the remainder of our time contrasting two more mitzvahs in our parsha, Two more sides of a coin, two mitzvahs in our parsha, which I think complement each other beautifully and in many ways um, very much uh, represent what the, what the parsha is about. Perch of Gimel Pasuk Yud. Skipping ahead. Kiseitzei machane alaivecha v'neshmarta mikol davara. Perch of Gimel Pasuk Yud in the Yard Scroll Stone Chumash on page 1054. When your camp goes out against your enemy, you're in battle, you're in war, and you're going out. Torah says, You need to be careful and guard yourself against anything evil. How do we preserve a holy and a righteous camp? How are our communities holy? How are they righteous? We're not getting into that right now. Our encampment, our community, do we strive for holiness? David Brooks had a column once where he talked about, do you strive for happiness or do you strive for holiness? What's our aim? What's our goal? How do we measure the success of our community? By happiness or by holiness? It's from this Pasuk, that we have to strive for holiness, not just happiness. But this section is introduced with these words, when your encampment is going out to confront an enemy, you have to be careful and you have to avoid any davara. What does that mean? What is this davara that we are avoiding? So Rashi says, a throwback to when we used to read inside, says Rashi, you better be more vigilant and more mindful than usual. When you're at war, when you're in battle, you're in a moment of danger. And when you're in a dangerous, precarious situation, that's when the Satan is aroused. You're even more vulnerable. So when you're in a dangerous situation, be even more vigilant and more aware. And more aware. The Sifseh Chacham says, Why is the Pasuk saying, Be careful when you're at war? Why not say when you're home? In between wars, in peacetime. In a war, you have to be extra careful. So that's Rashi's interpretation. That is what we are being careful about. The Ramban quotes it, and the Ramban says, we know when it comes to other nations, in a moment of war, the soldier who, who confronts their mortality also confronts their morality. Because the soldier says, you know, there's a good chance I'm going to die. What's even moral anymore? So in the context of war, it's easy for the soldier to steal and rape and pillage and, and, and be disloyal. 
the soldier to eat and take things that don't belong to them. So the Ramban says this pasuk is specifically not talking about when you're comfortable relaxing at home. Be careful, mikodavara. It's the soldier at war, and we know that soldiers who've acted immorally and ethically because they're confronting their own mortality and they confront their own morality. So the Ramban says that's why we have this extra special caution to be careful when you're at war. The Balaturim, however, has a different take. And the Balaturim is quoting the Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, and I wrote about it last week, and it's what I want to bring to your attention. It's from our Parsha. And, it's, and it, it talks to the power of speech and how we could use speech for the good or for the bad. So the Balaturim says, Mikol davara zeh nivalpeh. Mikol davar. The word davar is a play on words here for the Balaturim quoting from the Medrash. The word davar comes from the word dibur. Davar means a word. Dibur means speech. So the soldier at war is being cautioned. Mikol dibura. Mikol davara mikol dibura. When you're a soldier at war, you're going to start cursing and swearing and using profanity and vulgarity because what do you care? You're at war. It's life or death. People are shooting at each other, trying to kill each other. So the Torah says to the soldier, don't compromise your dignity. Don't compromise your morality. Don't compromise your classiness, who you are. Even when you're at war and you're going to be tempted to curse, and that's true not only for the soldier at war, but this temptation exists in the war in life. Some people are at the war in the, in the boardroom, in the war raising children, in the war getting through the day. They're at war trying to pump weights in the gym. And when we get our juices flowing and we're battling in the gym, battling in the boardroom, battling at home with our kids, battling in whatever way, battling to defeat an illness, battling to overcome grief or loss, we're tempted mikol davara. Sometimes we, we're tempted to use profanity or vulgarity. And that's what the Torah is cautioning us here. Don't forfeit your humanity. Don't concede what makes you special. Why is cursing bad? Why is cursing so bad? There was a famous routine from a famous comedian many years ago, George Carlin, on this, on this very topic. That what makes certain words a curse word? Because certain people allocated or, or designated certain words. Words are just words. That was the theme of his routine. Of course, I never heard. But the theme of his routine was that Words are just words, so some people designated them, that's what makes them curses? The answer is yes, they're not arbitrary, and they're not random. And once they take on that designation, that is significant when they're used in that designation. You see, what differentiates us from the animal kingdom is the power of speech. Torah says that a Kodesh Baruch Hu breathed life into us. And Unklos there translates Ruach Memalala. What does it mean when it says that God, that God breathed life into us? Unklosh translates it means it gave us the power of speech. Now, parenthetically, to whom were we meant to speak? This was before Chava came on the scene. Speaking was no problem once she was introduced. But before she came on the scene, to whom was Adam intended to speak? He was given this gift, once we're being politically incorrect, he was given this gift of, of speech. I live in a girl's dormitory, so I'm allowed to say that. I have six daughters and a wife. So... I didn't know a lot about the power of speech. So the, before Chava came on the scene, Adam is given this gift of the power of speech. To whom was he meant to speak? The animals? Who was he speaking with? The answer is, what's the original intent, the original purpose of speech? Who could Adam talk to? Who was he invited to talk to? The Ribbono Shalom. Prayer is the original purpose of the power of speech. Oh, once we have it to speak to Hashem, we could also use it to speak to one another, and we can use it in other constructive ways, but the original purpose of the power of prayer is to speak to Hashem. So what differentiates man from the animal kingdom? Our sophisticated, advanced power of communication. When we use it mindfully, when we use it with class and dignity, then we are promoting our godliness, our humanity. And when we lower ourselves, when we lower ourselves to uh, use whatever comes to mind and we don't have the discipline or the dignity to monitor our speech, if we use nivel pet profanity and cursing, then we, are, then we are nourishing the animal in us, not the uniquely human. So that's why nivel pet matters. The Gemara in Shabbos and Daflam and Gimel speaks very powerfully about the punishment that comes to a generation who engage in nivel pet. 
And I wrote the article this week because I'm very fearful that's our generation. I told a story recently, I was with my kids and somebody made a comment, a stranger made a comment to me and felt the need to use the most vulgar uh, curse that we have. I didn't want to hear it. And my kids asked me, why did you have to curse? And I didn't have a good answer. And the truth is, and I quoted the statistics in this article, it used to be that people in positions of leadership had greater dignity, or we had more expectations of their classiness, and they're, they're more careful about their language. And today, there's no place which is immune from profanity and vulgarity. It starts from the top. It's not a comment on the president. You like him, you hate him, Israel, other thing, race. I'm not commenting on it, but it's undeniable the vulgarity and how foul-mouthed he is and what that's done to our culture. And here's the thing, because I equally will rank on both sides. This is a bipartisan condemnation is it's not just him, the, the Democrats in the primary who all say he's unpresidential and want to replace him are dropping bombs bursting in air and in interviews and debates and cursing as if they're somehow communicating more effectively. I'm less impressed, not more. If you're smart, you can find a way to articulate your thoughts in a compelling, persuasive fashion without having to resort to a curse. When you resort to a curse, you're just trying to, to tap into people's emotion. I don't know what you're trying to do, but it's less impressive and it's not more. It's less impressive, not more. It's using the animal part of your brain, not the godly human part of the brain. And this is not mine, this comes from research I read, Professor Benjamin Bergen in the book he wrote about what swearing reveals about our language, our brains, and ourselves. How some stroke victims can still swear fluently, even if their other language abilities are severely impaired. Advanced language comes from the more sophisticated parts of the brain while swearing taps into a more primal neural hardware in the basal ganglia. Similarly, Tourette syndrome, dysfunction of the basal ganglia can cause an overwhelming urge to swear. The animal part of us wants to curse. It's the human part of us that is able to monitor and regulate and hold it back. So when you curse, you're literally like an animal. And it's when you can regulate your speech not to curse that you're expressing your humanity and your godliness. The Machzavitri, one of the great students of Rashi, writes that the prohibition of Nivopeh is a Deoraisa prohibition. It's from our Pasuk, Vinishmarta Mikol Davora Mikol Dibura, that be careful what comes out of our mouth, how we use that power of language, that gift of communication. Do we lower ourselves or do we elevate ourselves? Through our power of speech, it reflects and says so much about us. There's another Pasuk in our Parsha, which also reflects. Uh, which also is brought as a source for this very same idea, maybe the biblical source for it. The Pasuk says, Lo yira b'cha ervas davar. Lo yira b'cha ervas davar. There shouldn't be seen in us ervas davar. So the Medrash of Rabbah says, ervas dibur, not ervas davar, ervas dibur. Just like there's erva, this promiscuity between people, there's, there's immodesty, promiscuity, lewd and lascivious behavior between people, so too there's ervas dibur. In speech, there can be lewdness and profanity in the realm of speech. The Shlaha Kadosh, we quoted him earlier, the Shnei Luchos Abris, he writes that cursing is the avi avos hatumah. The ultimate source of impurity in our lives is when we can't regulate our own speech. And when a person resorts to cursing, it's the avi avos, avi avos hatumah. The Maral has an amazing insight. The Maral says, you know, cursing is described, that Gemara and Shabbos that talks about Nivopeh describes it even worse than other forms of impure language. Worse than Lashon Hara, gossip, and worse than swearing falsely, and worse than and the Maharaj says, you know why? Because in each of those cases, when you abuse the power of speech, you're doing it to a recipient and speaking to somebody else. And there's some form of a benefit to you in telling that Lashon Hara and swearing falsely. There's an agenda, there's a benefit. But when you curse, there's no one around. All you've done is degrade yourself. There's no audience to hear. All you've done is compromise your very self with no benefit. And that's the most degrading and therefore the most severe. He writes this in the Siv Hatznius, Perak Dalad. The Maral says, so using or listening to vulgarity is to take this beautiful gift, the power of communication, the power of speech, and it's contaminating it. It's spoiling it. It's destroying it. It's so beneath us and it lowers an entire generation. And the point of my article, which I won't repeat, you could read it, the point of the article was that as focused as some are on climate change and protecting the environment, there's another environment we need to protect. And it becomes compromised, and we have to worry about future generations of that environment, and the environment is the power of speech. When you can't watch a debate with your children, 
because you're worried about bombs bursting in air. When you can't watch an interview with the President of the United States or those who aspire for that office from any party because you're worried about what foul mouth will, what, what vulgarity will come out of their foul mouth, we've got a problem. Our environment is getting compromised, not only for our generations, but generations to come. And we need, we need a return. There used to be standards. There used to be standards. I wrote in the article, there was an episode in the 1950s of I Love Lucy that uh, Lucy was supposed to tell her husband that she was pregnant, but the word pregnant was too risque and racy to use on TV. So therefore she had to say that she was expecting a baby. And it was a controversial episode on CBS because the notion that she was pregnant itself was controversial. I'm not suggesting we go back to that. I'm not suggesting that that was a balanced place to be. But think about how far we've come, how far we've come where there are no standards at any hour of the day, on any form of media, there are no standards and it is compromising and contaminating our environment. But I want to end by going in the opposite direction. So how do we use the power of speech? I was going to speak about honesty in business. I had so much to talk about. Oh, the end of the Parsha. The end of the Parsha. Honesty in business. You know what the Torah calls dishonest weights and measures? A toeva, an abomination. Some in the from community like to use the word toeva, we banter around the word toeva, abomination, to talk about what we were alluding to earlier in the Rav. And the Torah does use the word abomination when it talks about those, is those issues. But it also used the word abomination to talk about honest weights and measures. People who are dishonest in business, who bend the rules in business, who steal, lie, and cheat in business, who cut corners in business, are an abomination, are a toeva. They're an abomination to Hashem and to all of us and to our community. Okay, but the other, the other side of the coin that I wanted to share with you is a Pasuk in Perak Chav Gimel, Pasuk Chav Dawad. Perak Chav Gimel, Pasuk Chav Dawad. The Torah says, go back a couple of psukim. Kisidur neder l'Hashem l'kecha. If you make a promise to God, so you pledge, you make a vow. Lo sa'acher l'shalmo. Don't delay in paying it off. Ki daroshi dushenu Hashem l'kecha me'imach v'yabachachet. And here the Mephoshim, I was going to get into it, we don't have time. Rashi says, If you vow to make a pledge of a korban to Hashem, you have three regalim. You have three yantifs, one cycle of the holidays, to pay it off, don't delay. Make good on it. That's the negative prohibition. Now the Torah tells us on the positive, gives us an assay, a mitzvah assay, in addition to the los assay. What's the mitzvah assay? Says the Torah, Motzas fasecha tishmor ve'asisa. Whatever you observe and carry out what emerges from your lips, just as you vowed a voluntary gift to Hashem, whatever you spoke with your mouth, so shall you do. What promise, what vow is the Pasuk referring to? So the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah Davav interprets your mouth as someone who makes a vow to Tzedakah and says that it's the status of a neder. So if you say, count me in for the Kol Nidre appeal, put me down for a pillar, I want to be a friend of BRS. I take advantage of the Pasha class every week. I use the air conditioning and the lights and the parking lot and the rabbi's time. I want to contribute. Put me down. I'm going to be a friend of BRS. When we make a pledge with our lips to give to tzedakah, we have a halachic responsibility. It is the status of a neder. And you can't renege on it. If you fail to fulfill it, you violated a Torah prohibition. That's why the Shulchan Aruch in Yerodeah, Simon Reish Gimna tells us, this person should always say bli neder. When you make a pledge, I'd rather you not say bli neder. <laughs> but if you want to cover yourself, when you make a pledge, you always say bli neder without making a promise. I'll do my best. I'll try. I'll try to participate. Because if you don't say the words bli neder without a promise, then it has the halachic status of a promise and we hold you accountable. Halachically, we can embase and extract that money from you because if you made that promise, if you offer, you can't offer lip service and fail to fulfill it. So the commentaries encourage us to understand the Pasuk is not just limited to vows not just limited to tzedakah. This is a general directive. This is, like I say, the other side of the coin of abusing a power of speech by using nivel peh. But this is a general directive to be extremely careful to fulfill our promises, to keep our word, to be truthful and honest in whatever emerges from our lips. Why does the Pasuk say the word tishmor? Guard what comes out of your lips. Rabbeinu Yonah in the fourth parak of Mishle explains that humans are designed to forget. We may have had the greatest intention to fulfill our promise. When we said it, we meant it. And when we said it, we meant to follow through on it. And you know what happened? Life got in the way. There was a hurricane that was scheduled to destroy you or wipe you out. Something else happened in the world. Yuntif season interrupted. When we said it, we meant it. We had the best intentions. But we were designed to forget. 
And that's why the Torah specifically enjoins us to shmore. Make sure that you preserve it. Make a note. Write it down. Send yourself an email. Hold yourself accountable. Tishmor, be vigilant and careful and scrupulous. The burden is on us to safeguard and follow through on whatever promise that we make. And I would suggest that this is true, the motzas vasecha tishmor, not to abuse the power of speech, means whatever emerges from our lips, we have to fulfill that promise. We have to fulfill that promise in a meaningful way. It's an amazing story about Mori Varabi, my Rebbe of Shechter, who today doesn't drink coffee, he only drinks tea. And he gives countless shiurim, and he often... I've been with him, I've made him tea. He counts on hot tea to soothe his throat, not lose his voice. And he drinks his tea plain with no sugar. So I heard once from his son that a guest at the Shechter home was asking him over and over, why doesn't you sugar? Wouldn't the tea taste better? Doesn't he want to sweeten it? Why doesn't Rav Shechter put sugar in his tea? A great piece of trivia for you. Why doesn't the great Rav Shechter take his tea with sugar? So finally Rav Shechter turned to the guest and told him the reason why, only because he was pushed so much. He said many, many years ago on a trip to Israel with his rabbits and they were first married many years ago. They celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. He was at a meeting at a non-observant person's home in Kiryat Arba. And when the person offered Rav Shechter something to eat or drink to both not insult the person and be safe, he said, I'll have a tea. Can I have a glass of tea, a cup of tea? So the person offered him sugar and Rav Shechter realized that sugar wasn't necessarily kosher. Leave out the details why. So he said, I don't take sugar in my tea. I don't take sugar in my tea. And he told this guest at his table that 50 years later he still did not drink sugar in his tea because because what you say with your lips has to mean something. And if that's what you said, even if you said it so as not to insult them, but once you said it, it's part of reality. You have to mean it. So all too frequently, even with the best intentions, we make each other promises. We say things with our lips. Let's do lunch. I'll meet you there in five minutes. I'm on my way home now. And they seem like inconsequential comments, hardly meaningful promises, but that's what the Torah is telling us, tishmor, motzas fasecha, whatever you say, for your word to mean anything, for your word to be your bond, for you to have any integrity, to be able to trust you when you say something, if you want it to be valued, it has to mean something. It has to mean something. It has to mean something. The Mishnah Bab Metziah tells us, Amru misha para me'anshe dora mabo midora flaga, hu asad lehi para me'misha ina omed bediburo. We describe he who exacted punishment, payment from the people of the generation of the flood will exact payment from whoever does not stand by his statement. If you promise falsely, Hashem will exact payment from you the same way he did from the generation of the flood. Why, of all comparisons, why to the Dor HaMabal, Dor HaFlaga? So Rav Asher suggests that the generation of the Mabal was characterized by Hamas, chaos. And when a person makes promises and doesn't follow through, if a person's word is not their bond, if they use their lips freely and it's just lip service, then it results in a world where word mean nothing. is a world of chaos. It's a flood of corruption. It can't continue. So Hashem says, if you make promises and don't fulfill them, if you're not careful what you say, if you don't follow through on your pledges, then I will exact payment from you like I did from the generation of the flood. Why? Because we create this notion of a flood when we and chaos when we offer false promises and we don't follow through on our words. Words can't be cheap. They have to mean something. They can't be careless or casual. If we make a promise or a pledge, we have to follow through. Tishmor, the burden is on us. The burden is on us to follow through. When I uh, mentioned this in Adrasha previously, I gave an example. I'll end with this example now. At that time, it was still very timely for me. And uh, it will be again, please God, for all of us. But how many of us get invited to a simcha? And we look at the calendar, we're not really sure whether we can make it, not make it, so we say, why not, we're coming. When you leave a simcha, I'm often towards the end of leaving a simcha, walk by the place card table and see how many people responded they were coming and never showed. You understand how much money that costs the hosts? Could you imagine? Would you take that money out of their pocket and throw it in the garbage? They paid for that meal. It cost often an extraordinary amount of money. I'm not talking about extenuating circumstances when an emergency came up, but because we flippantly or casually, ah, it's inconvenient, I don't really feel like going, it's raining outside, it's far away, they'll never notice I'm not there. But to flippantly respond that we're coming, we have to be vigilant and careful with what comes out of our mouth. If you make a promise and you say you're going to be there, be there, unless it's extenuating circumstances, because otherwise you've just thrown away someone else's money. You squandered 
in a certain sense, you've stolen because you made a promise that you didn't fulfill and you didn't follow through on. That's why we all have to be much more careful. So these are the two sides of that coin. On the one hand, we see the soldier going out to war has to be careful of ervas davar. We have to be careful with our speech. We shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, lower ourselves to use the animal part of the brain to engage in nivel peh on the one hand. And on the other, we are enjoined, we are challenged to elevate ourselves by every word meaning something. Our word being our bond and following through on our promises. Have a great week.